Scripture reading this evening in the book of 1 John in the New Testament, which you'll find following the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews, James, and then Peter, and after that, 1 John. We're reading this evening in chapter 3 of 1 John, verses 4 through 10. 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him that is in Jesus is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Neither is anyone who does not love his brother. Thus reads once more the living and abiding word of God. Now, on these Sunday evenings, we have been pursuing the great message of this portion of God's Word, and we have seen that basically this great letter of John falls into two parts. In chapters 1 and 2, as you will readily recall, the theme of John has been uh, living in the light of God's presence. And if we profess to be Christians, then living in the light of his presence demands and requires certain things of God's people. But from chapter 3 through to the middle of chapter 5, as I reminded you last Sunday evening, the theme changes to that of love. And you will have noticed that the choice of a series title for these expositions in First John faithfully reflects these two themes of this great book of Scripture, the fellowship of light and love. And last Sunday evening we saw in the opening verses of chapter 3, in verses 1 to 3, that John provides a sort of parenthesis uh, that leads in to his second great theme. Having looked at the subject of God is light and its implications for the Christian in chapters 1 and 2, he looks at the subject and the implications of this second great truth, God is love. And he reflects on the greatness of the privilege of God's children that they have the love of God the Father set upon them. From what country? You remember, John says, does this amazing love of God come to us? What is its origin? 
It comes not from anything in this world, but from out beyond. And it puts us in the position of immense privilege, as well as, of course, immense obligation. And you remember how last Sunday evening we ended upon the note of the practical duty of the Christian to purify himself as Christ is pure because we have received this great love of God that has taken us out of a condition of darkness into a condition of fellowship with God himself. Now, as we come to verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3 this evening, and as we have seen John stand amazed at the love of God, he now brings to us some of the implications of living in the love of God. And the basic lesson of these verses is that if we are children of God, we are bound to live in a certain kind of way. Now, in a very beautiful passage of this letter, these verses 4 through 10, there is a lovely symmetry about what John is bringing to us. And you will notice this evening that there are two statements about the believer. And there are two statements about sin. And then, finally, there are two statements about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to look at these verses this evening in the light of these three great themes that run so richly through verses 4 through 10. Now let me remind you again as we do this that in the book of 1 John, unlike the writings of the Apostle Paul where he is very logical and one step follows another step, with the Apostle John, as we have noticed, I think, frequently in these studies, it's almost like listening to a symphony, a very beautiful piece of music. First one instrument is heard over the sound of the orchestra, and then another instrument predominates. But there is a beautiful harmony and richness in the whole. And John's writings are like that. And that's why as we study this book, you notice that I refer to this verse and then maybe I refer to another verse that is several verses on. Because the way in which John writes is like a symphonic writing uh, in contrast to the very logical presentation that the Apostle Paul so often gives to us in his own powerful books of the New Testament. Now, I want you then to look with me at this great and important theme that he brings to us, the burden of the passage, that if I am a child of God tonight, one of God's children, because God, my Father, is righteous, then I also am bound to live a righteous life before him. And John, as I say, begins to present this theme by reminding us of two statements about the believer. And you find these two statements in verses 6 and 7 and in verses 9 through 10. Now look at those verses with me, if you will, in your Bible in front of you. No one, says John, who lives or abides in him, that is in Jesus, this is verse 6, keeps on sinning. Then look down at verse 9. 
No one who is born of God will continue to sin. And I'm reading, of course, from the New International Version translation. Now remember that the whole thrust of this passage is that if we are God's children, we will be righteous. We will live holy lives. So here is John marshalling his first evidence and presenting the first motive for living as we should. And I suggest to you that there are two things here, two statements about the believer. And the first statement is concerning the incompatibility of the Christian sinning while he is abiding in Christ. And that's the thought, you notice, at the beginning of verse 6 and then, as I read it, at the beginning of verse 9. The incompatibility of abiding in Christ and continuing to sin while abiding in him. Now what John is saying to us, beloved, is absolutely staggering and deeply challenging. Because what he presents to us in these two verses is in absolute terms. No one who abides in Christ sins. Verse 6. No one who is born of God, verse 9, sins. He cannot sin because he is born of God. Now I want you to notice that because in the NIV translation, the translation is keeps on sinning, continues to sin, goes on sinning. And I want to emphasize that these words are not in the original Greek text. What John is saying is something that appears to be absolute. I am in Christ. I am abiding in him. Therefore, I do not sin. That practice is no longer mine. And that absoluteness, you notice, is made still more clear at the end of verse 6, where he says explicitly that no one who sins has either seen him or known him. Now, isn't that an incredible statement? And what is John's meaning? We need, beloved, to understand this, because otherwise we will be in great difficulty in our Christian life and experience. Now, down through the Christian centuries, there have been several interpretations of what John means, and all of them have been misleading and wrong. For instance, some Christians have been so challenged by this statement of John's that they say, of course he must mean not sinning generally, because we all do this, even as Christians. Therefore, he means some great and heinous sin, murder or adultery, or something truly awful like that. And in the early church, this was the view of some of the early church fathers, and even at the time of the Reformation, some of the early reformers took this position, and you can still read that it is their position in their commentaries that survive to this day. And of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, this is 
the position that the Catholic Church takes. But there is a difference in the quality of sins that we commit. There are mortal sins and there are venial sins. And the mortal sins are deadly. But the venial sins are of less significance and importance. We all commit the second, but the first is the one that we should seek to avoid. Now, is this what John means? When he says the Christian has ceased to sin? Well, of course not. Biblically, there is no biblical distinction in sin like that. All sin is serious, as Scripture tells us. And Christians, alas, on occasion, do commit very heinous and serious sins. And, of course, that interpretation is wrong. Now, a second interpretation is that what John is saying is literally to be taken at his face value. It is the perfectionist view of the Christian life that if I'm truly in Christ and abiding in him, I do not sin at any level. And in preparation for this evening's exposition, I listened to a certain tape by a fellow minister who recounted a true incident a number of years ago when he was in seminary where a seminary lecturer, visitor to the college, claimed before a class of students that for the past 20 years he had never sinned. And my minister friend said quietly, I would like to talk to that man's wife. Now, of course, that's not the interpretation that John means us to take out of this. What this man was doing was redefining what sin is. I have not consciously sinned in the last 20 years. And he is a bold man, I tell you, who can make that kind of claim. But whether sin is conscious or not, it is still sin. And as we have seen, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 8 of John's letter, what he writes there contradicts this view when he says that he that says he does not sin is a liar before God. And a third false interpretation is obviously those who say that John is setting before us an ideal. This is something that we cannot presently experience, but it is a goal to which we should tend a goal of sinless perfection, although we don't actually reach it in this life. But you notice the answer to that is that John's tenses in verse 6 and verse 9 are the present tenses. If I abide in Christ, I do not sin now. It's not in the future. It's a present experience of the Christian. So what is the true interpretation? And having maligned the NIV, I must now say that the NIV is perfectly correct. But it's another instance of how the NIV does not always literally translate, but sometimes interprets. And undoubtedly the correct understanding is that if I am in Christ, then I do not habitually commit sin. It is not my practice regularly to be found in sin. And this is the only adequate and possible interpretation of what John is teaching us. We cannot habitually live in the practice of sin because we are abiding in Christ.
Now, this is clearly his sense, because if you look down at verse 10 of our passage, the whole distinction between the children of God on the one hand and the children of the devil on the other is that the children of of the devil wallow in sin. They enjoy sin. They have no feelings other than pleasure as they engage in sin. And by this attitude show themselves to be children of the devil and not children of God. And by contrast, the child of God lives in the habitual practice of doing what is right. And do you see what I'm saying to you this evening? That if I do not practice righteousness as the great mainspring of my living, then I am not a child of God. It is incompatible with being a child of God that I should be found in the practice of sin. Now that's the first truth about believers that John gives us. Now do you notice the second truth that he gives us? And it is that the whole disposition of the child of God will reflect God's nature and not the devil's. And he gives this to us in verse 9, in the middle of the verse. Because God's seed, he tells us, remains in us, and at the end of that same verse, because no one who is born of God will sin, because he has been born of God. So the second great truth about the believer is that my disposition as a Christian is going to reflect my parentage. If I am a child of God, I'm going to reflect the characteristics of the God who is my father. Is he righteous? Then I shall be righteous. And John's analogy is so simple here and so powerful that even the youngest child in the service tonight can capture it. Just as in the animal kingdom, the little baby animal reflects the characteristics of its parent. If the parent is a rabbit, the baby will be a rabbit. If the parent is a squirrel, the baby will be a squirrel. And in the human kingdom, we give birth to our own kind, thank God. And so it is in the spiritual kingdom. Our whole disposition will reflect those or that one, I should say, who is our spiritual parent. Now, there are two thoughts there, and you notice them as you look with me at verse 9. We possess a new nature. And what John refers to there as the seed of God remaining in him, that is, in the believer, has to do almost certainly with God's nature. Those who belong to God have the nature of God. And that nature of God, John tells us, is opposed to sin. It will not let the believer rest in sin or remain in sin. And it will constantly expose sin and prod the believer on to forsake it and to seek holiness by contrast. 
Now isn't that a wonderful truth of our Christian lives and a test of whether we are where we claim to be? Have I been born of God? Then if that has taken place, within me is a new nature implanted by the seed of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel, so that I partake, as Peter says in his first chapter and verse 23, of a divine nature, because the living and imperishable seed of God has been planted within me. And therefore my desire will be for holiness and my practice will be for living righteously. And the second thing that he brings to us in that verse is the new birth, you notice. No one who is born of God will sin because he has been born of God. And that's where it all comes from. That's where it all starts. That's the source of my ability not to habitually sin. That is the source of my new standing before God, partaking in the divine nature through Christ. That is the reason why my whole disposition that once was towards sin and welcomed it and enjoyed it and took pleasure in it has now been changed and transformed and made different and renewed so that I am now a child of God as once I was a child of the devils. I have been born of God. Now do you see the vital importance as we leave this thought of John's, the two truths about the believer, the two statements about him, but it is incompatible to practice sin while abiding in Christ, and that the whole disposition of the child of God will reflect God's nature, not the devil's. And the importance is that all of Adam's race are not like that. They are subject to Satan. Their lives reflect his rule and the principles of evil. They live, as we have seen in our study of chapter 2, in the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And the habitual sinner does not do the same things that the child of God does. He does not desire the same things that the child of God does. He wallows in his sin. He loves it. He enjoys every moment of it. But if I have come to newness of life in Christ, I strive to be pure from sin. I pray to that end. I read the scripture to that end. I fill my mind with the word of God to that end. I mortify the old fallen nature and put it to death by God's grace to that end so that the glorious hope, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, might be before me, that I behold the glory of Jesus as in a mirror darkly, and as I behold it I am changed into the image of him whom I love, even from glory to glory. Let me ask you, do you profess to be a Christian? Is this what your life is like? this evening. And then there are two statements, you notice, secondly, about sin. 
and these you find in verse 4 and again at the beginning of verse 8. Now remember that John's purpose is the same, to bring the overarching message that if I am in Christ, I am committed to righteousness. Now what does he say about sin? Well, again, there are two thoughts. One concerns its nature, and the other concerns its origin. Look at verse 4 with me in your Bible. His definition of sin. Sin, he says, is lawlessness. Now, it certainly appears that he was writing into a background of biblical error concerning the nature of sin because we think that very probably the Gnostics and the heretics who are always in the background of this letter had a totally different view of what sin was and its seriousness. They merely thought of it as the shadow cast by goodness, as it were. They never saw it in the light of God's law. And one of the commentators on this passage says that they thought their superior enlightenment placed them above the moral law of God so that they were no better for keeping law, God's law, and no worse for breaking it. That was their view of sin. And isn't that so current in our world today? We're living in a day and an age where the seriousness of sin is so often no longer regarded. You can perhaps remember some of the books of this generation, Honest to God, by Bishop Robinson that circulated on this side of the Atlantic as well as in my own country where he defines sin as what? Failure to love God. And he went on to say that in certain circumstances, if I act in a very loving way toward another person, I may even permissibly commit adultery with that person because I'm showing the love of God to him or to her. And some of you may have seen that recent television play on uh, the television screen, Tea and Sympathy where a female teacher actually does that with one of her deprived students supposedly because this is an act that is acceptable to God. But the point here, beloved, is that sin, according to John, is not lovelessness, it's lawlessness, and it is of a very serious nature. It is rebellion against God himself. And when you think, to take an illustration of your own family, when your little child defies you and declines to do something that he or she has been deliberately and clearly told to do, what is it? It is that your authority is being defied as a parent. The child is thumbing his nose or her nose at your standards. And do you allow that to pass? And this is what John is saying about the nature of sin. It's not something impersonal and unimportant. If I am a child of God, and this is his point, dare I defy his authority? Dare I thumb my nose in the face of my heavenly Father and practice what is lawlessness before him and stand in opposition to the good and benign will? of my Father who only designs 
my good and my growth in grace. I cannot be callous or flippant about that. And that is the first truth about sin. It is lawlessness in its nature. But look at its origin, which is the second truth in verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, says John. And we need to remember this in our Christian lives when we're tempted to play with sin and to enjoy it as we did in our unconverted days. Look back, says John, at the origin from which it arose. All sin comes by this root. The devil is the origin of all evil. It began with his rebellion as he came into the world to Adam and Eve and tempted them to sin and with their fall brought down all of mankind along with them so that all born of Adam's race are subject of Satan to Satan with lives ruled by his principles of evil. Now that is the seriousness, he says of it, that all who live in this world to please self are revealed to be the subjects of the devil. There are only two families on the earth, in other words, the family of God and the family of the devil. How do I distinguish them? I distinguish them by their practice of living in unrighteousness or living substantially, though not perfectly, in righteousness and obedience to God. Now again, let me ask you this evening, as John would apply these words to ourselves, to which family do you belong? Do you really recognize, he says to us, the nature of sin, how serious it is? Do you recognize the origin of sin, the one from whom it came? So which family are you in, the family of God or the family of the devil? And why are you practicing lawlessness if you are in the family of God when the behavior that characterizes you belongs to the other family? And according to John, you are not just doing what you are doing because it is some aberration, but because it may well indicate that you have never passed over from the one family to the other. You are showing where you really are in which family. Then finally, do you notice this evening that he brings to us the test of two statements about Christ's appearing. And this you find in verse 5 and at the end of verse 8. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Verse 5. And then in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, this is the third convincing motive and evidence that John brings to us that we should live righteous lives. The two truths about the believer has shown us that. The two truths about sin has also shown us that. But now there are two truths about the appearing of Christ. 
And you remember in verses 1 through 3 of the chapter, he had appealed to Christ's uh, second advent as a reason for purifying ourselves. Because Jesus is coming and we will bear his witness, John said that everyone who belongs to Jesus will purify himself in preparation for that day, the second coming of Christ. Now what is interesting here is that John is referring not to the second coming of Christ, but to the first coming of Christ. You know that he appeared, past tense, in the world, that he might take away our sins. And verse 8, the reason the Son of God has appeared, again his first coming, was to destroy the devil's work. Now, in other words, it is John's third and final appeal to us based upon the coming of Christ into the world. What does he say? Again, the two thoughts. Christ has come to take sin away. Are you a child of God this evening? Do you claim that for yourself? That righteousness has been planted in you as a work of God's grace? Yet you would involve yourself deliberately in sin tonight? And the answer to that situation, John tells us, is remember that your Savior came into the world to take sin away. And the whole purpose, he says, of Christ coming into the world was not just to set a good example of how men should live or how we should treat our enemies and love them in spite of what they do to us, but the whole coming of Christ is summarized in the work of the cross where he came to bear away in his own body the sins of his people. And as he is sinless, so we should live a life that avoids and eschews sin at all points. As he is sinless, verse 5, do you abide in Christ? Do you claim to have seen Christ? Do you claim that you are where he is? Then the answer should be that as he is where righteousness is, so you should be where righteousness is. And the characteristic of our life should not be the characteristic of sin. Because if you are in sin, you are not where Christ is. Now do you see that thought? He came to take it away. And the second great truth is this, and with this I'm going to finish. Christ came to destroy the devil, verse 8. Yet you would still live in sin, John is implying. He came to deal with the whole kingdom of evil, sin, sins, the devil, the source of all sin and sins. He came to destroy the works of the devil. 
And the word in Greek is very clear and very explicit. That which loosens, that which abolishes, that which renders powerless is the meaning of the word. And the, the Lord Jesus was manifested in the world to do that very thing to the works of Satan, to render powerless all his dominion over us, the children of God. He came to conquer sin, death, the devil, and as victor returned to the glory that from his power shed down to us by the Spirit, we might live in righteousness and not in the darkness that characterized us before. Now the point is this, as I finish, that if we are children of God, what high privilege is ours a privilege that bears the responsibility of living in the family likeness. Do you see what he said to us? It's not redundant. He said something similar in chapter 1. He'll keep on saying it all through this letter, but it's a profound biblical truth. Am I a Christian? When I look at sin, I should be shocked by it. I should abhor it. I should detest it. I should see it not as the world sees it, in all its glitter and allurement and its romance. Isn't that how sin is presented to us on every hand today? The romance of doing wrong, the inconsequential nature of it. But if I'm a child of God, I see it for what it is, because I see the two truths about me as a believer, the two truths about sin, its nature and origin, the two truths about the appearing of Christ to take it away and to destroy once and for all the whole works of the devil. And I look at it and I say to myself, it's out of the pit of hell. It's what the devil inspires. And thank God, I don't have the outlook of the world anymore that wallows in it and enjoys every moment of it until its consequences become painful. But rather, I say to myself, why am I tolerating it? Why am I indulging it? Why am I allowing it a foothold in my life? I'm a child of God. And I must rid myself of it and practice righteousness and abide in Christ and bear the family image of God who is righteous. As we pray. Our Father, we thank you for these things this evening, and even though some of these truths are very familiar to us, grant that the Holy Spirit may bring them with fresh power and conviction to our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.